Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. Holy cow. I warned you, didn't I? I told you that this time of year, things get off the charts crazy. A lot of water has gone under the bridge since we last talked, and not just in Colorado. Last time we chatted was the end of August, and I was preparing to race the Pocatello Marathon. Well, in three weeks since then, I've run two marathons in a relay race. Of course, I'm paying the price this week as we speak, but before I get into it, let me remind you that it is a busy time of year, and that with that increased activity comes stress and lack of sleep and all sorts of unhealthy behavior. You feel it. Your family feels it. I feel it. I want you to remember that for the most part, these are external forces of stress, and you get to choose how you respond. I'll give you a couple of quick ideas. First, channel your inner Zen master and let the stress wash over you. Don't struggle in the current. Roll with it and keep swimming. Take this as an opportunity to learn some simple breathing, relaxation, and meditation techniques. There's plenty of examples out there online. Just get some. Have them in your back pocket ready for when you need them. We get storms this time of year in New England, and when Buddy and I run the trails after the storms, we see the trees and the branches that have been broken down. The tree that fares the worst is the oak. And this is surprising because the oak is the strongest wood. Oaks are the strongest trees, and because of that, they fight the wind instead of accepting it and moving with it. Because the oak fights the storm, it loses. The pines and the softwoods, they sway and they flex in the storms. And they don't sustain much damage. They bend, but they don't break. Secondly, you can't control the external forces of stress, but you can control how you respond. So take a moment each morning. I know you're tired. When you wake up, hunted and tired, your work from yesterday still undone, Not enough sleep for a couple of weeks in a row. Commitments piled high in the road in front of you like angry dragons. Don't get weird. Take a moment and smile. Assume a positive outlook. Assume an attitude of abundance. Take a deep breath. Marshal your flagging forces and prepare to attack. The best way out is through, and the best way through is with vigor. Choose to go forward with aplomb. Don't let the bastards beat you down. Your co-workers, friends, and family need you. Be the leader. Be the beacon. If not for yourself, then for the rest of us. And finally, not everything needs to get done right now. It's okay to let some things slip. Do a good job of prioritizing and choose what you're going to do well. Put the other stuff aside. If you try to do everything, you'll just do everything poorly. If we have learned anything in the five years that we've been talking, it's that successful people choose wisely. 
and prioritize their time for the greatest impact. See, now, do you feel better? I bet you feel better. Good. Because I'm still sleep-deprived, <laughs> jet-lagged, and drowning under a sea of self-created work. Did I mention I'm also sore? Yep, I'm sore. And let's start back three weeks ago. The last time we talked, I felt good coming out of Pocatello. The quads were a tad sore for a couple of days from racing the downhills. But overall, I felt strong, especially coming out of a hard marathon. And I ran a couple easy runs that week. I was very glad to have Labor Day off to relax a little and sleep a little. And I was down in Atlanta all that week. And I got back Friday night, and there was no way I was going to drive up to New Hampshire that night for the Winnipesaukee Relay the next day. And since I had leg seven, the second to last leg, I told them, I'll drive up in the morning and meet you at the exchange. And anyone who has ever run a relay race knows that nothing makes the team captain more nervous than when someone says, I'll meet you at the exchange. You have to picture, and I've seen this, picture these confused runners wandering around looking for someone to hand the baton to. But I made it with plenty of time to spare. I drove the course backwards to get to my exchange point, and I was mortified to see the elevation profile. It was eight and a half miles of classic New England rolling hills. Not a flat spot on it. Ups outnumbering the downs two to one, and a monster three-quarter miler at the end before it turned downhill for about a quarter mile into the exchange chute. Holy moly. I'm thinking to myself, I just raced a marathon. And I'm telling myself, it's no problem. You have no commitments here. Just run easy. Maybe you break eight-minute miles. Just don't hurt yourself. But, of course, when Eric comes wheeling in the exchange, I take the baton and something snaps. I hit that first downhill like Steve Prefontaine after a six-pack of Red Bull. I had the ska punk mix on the headphones, and I was jacked. The whole time, I'm looking at my pace thinking, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, slow down, slow down. And then I see up ahead, another competitor. It's a young guy, but I'm gaining on him. And of course, now I'm thinking, I'll slow down after I catch this guy. And the hunt is on, and I reel him in on an uphill section and make sure to pass him with authority. And I look at my watch, and I'm dropping 720s uphill when I pass. Oh, crap. It's an 8-9 to nine mile leg, and I'm running 5K pace uphill at the 2-mile mark. Idiot! But it feels so good. I'm flying. I just passed a guy 30 years younger than me. I break into a broad smile as the music pounds, my legs churn, and I relax into race pace. And God help me, it feels good. I'm resolved to slow down now, but I turn a corner and another competitor comes into view. Well, I'm all in now anyhow. Might as well play it out. I catch him at the top of the hill and he hears me coming. Another guy at least 20 years younger than me. And I'm reviewing my race tactics of how I'm going to break him. I'm going to get on his shoulder, in his shadow, and I'm going to stick there silently as he tries to shake me, like the Grim Reaper. I'm going to look for my opportunity, maybe a nice downhill with a sharp corner, and I'll administer the coup de gras in such a way that he won't be able to respond. And then he just pulls over and lets me pass. Huh? That's not how we used to do things. Now it's just me and my ska punk and three or four more miles of grueling hills to survive. So I pull back into myself and pace, 
on that last big hill, I think about walking. I actually make the first half step into a walk and then slap myself for being soft and keep the legs moving. And by the top, I've slowed to over nine minute miles. Then I crest, and coming down into that chute, I let it go. I was flying. A quick glance at my watch put me under six-minute miles, and I do love a downhill finish. And I hand the baton to Ryan and celebrate an amazing 7.15 average pace effort with a net two-place improvement for my team. And where did I find this performance six days after a hard marathon? All I can think is that Mad Dog is back, and I'm indestructible again. But, as we know... Pride cometh before the fall. I woke up the next day with a tight hamstring from racing the hills. And Tuesday, I was doing some fartlek pickups on the treadmill, and it hurt. But I decided to push through it, because I'm an idiot. And I took Wednesday off, and it feels better. Then I was out in Phoenix, and my big brain tells me that I should rest. But my romantic brain knows there's a mountain outside waiting be run. If you are ever in Phoenix, there is no more religious an experience than running up Camelback Mountain at the crack of dawn and watching the sun rise over Phoenix. It is mystical. And so it was Thursday morning. I ran slash scrambled up the Chola Trail on the backside of Camelback and had a wonderful, beautiful, uplifting experience. Mad Dog was indeed back and indestructible. Okay, I'm almost at the end of this story, the part where I'm sore, so stick with me. This past weekend, I drove out to the Erie Marathon in Pennsylvania. I convinced my wife to go with me, and we stopped in Schenectady on Saturday to watch my daughter's field hockey team play Union College because it was on the way. You see how, how I do these things? It was a long drive, and I went into the race Sunday sleep-deprived, having spent far too many hours in airplanes and cars, and my quads were still sore from skipping down the mountain, and my nutrition was a stale croissant at Tim Hortons in the rest area. Strategy-wise, I wasn't expecting much, especially given the amount of racing I've been doing. But area's flat, shaded, two-loop course on a cool day, so I went out at race pace to see how I felt. You never know. I clicked through the half, feeling relaxed and fine at uh, 143.15. There was a wee headwind, so I tucked behind a guy who was running around a 7.55 pace. And around 15 and a half miles, he started to slow. So I pulled out to pass him, and my left hammy, that had been tricky all week, went kazang! Oh, crap, bola, 11 miles from the finish line and down to one leg. Well, I pulled my form together and found a limpy pace that I could hold without the hammy screaming. It was around a nine-minute mile. Oh, well. And that was it for the next two hours, trying to hold my form together and trying to get to the finish. Every once in a while, I'd stretch my stride a little too much and let out a little yelp of pain that would surprise the people passing me. Man, I gotta tell you, I would much rather run at race pace because it takes so long to get to the finish line when you're going slower than you're used to. I managed it through the finish line into 341, <laughs> gave back 10 minutes in the last 10 miles, but doing it with calculated efficiency like the veteran I am. And one thing I'm proud of is that I did not walk. I decided that no matter what happened, there would be no walking in this race, and there wasn't. 
And this is all the race report you're going to get on Erie because it was really quite uneventful. It's a fast course on a flat, mostly shaded, two-loop course. There's water every mile, and they have been doing this for 40 years, so the volunteers know what they're doing. If you're looking for a time, I would recommend Erie. The only interesting story that I have for you is about a big, old, ugly possum. We were working our way through the final miles, and a possum walked out in the road in front of us. Remember, I'm running slow, so I see him, and possums move slow too. I see him like a quarter mile away, start walking into the road. And you know you, that thing you get where you know you're, gonna, you're going at the perfect speed to intersect with something moving in your direction? It's hard enough. Running the last couple of miles of a marathon with a bad leg, and then I literally had to run around this big, stinky, bad-tempered, ugly possum. It was surreal. Marathon of the month, Erie, Pennsylvania, done, and I am sore. My left calf is hammered from running those last 10 miles with a limp. I am beat up. I have to let my old bones recover a little. And now, my friends, we are all caught up. That's it. Today we have an interview with Chris Cooper and his new book, 50 Best Races, where he interviews all these famous runners about what their most memorable race was. In section one, I'm going to rant about the power of sales thinking. And in section two, I'm going to keep going on the plantar fasciitis series. In section three, I'll read Sanskrit runes inaudibly into the microphone. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Why you should stop sneering at the sales team and learn something. You're going to have to excuse me, but I'm about to rant. Rant on. I do not refer to myself as a salesperson, but many people do. In fact, I have no direct sales responsibility, and I bridle when they say it. They say, but you're in sales. And I correct them. I am an executive. And one of the disciplines of running a business, a vital discipline, is sales. I, as a student of business with an open mind, understand that sales, and I shudder as I say it because of all the baggage that the word carries, sales is the most important and impactful science and discipline you can master not only for your company, but also for your personal success. Now, if you're still with me, I know you. You are not going to let petty, moronic biases keep you from learning this discipline and using it to your advantage. Let's face it, the majority of the population maintains this nonsensical, insulting view of sales. You, on the other hand, by learning its secrets, will outpace and steal a march on the feeble-minded majority. And I know you. You have this picture in your head of some redneck in a plaid suit trying to sell a used car. That, my friends, is a cultural bias. If that is your built-in bias, then your inner game is broken, and you need to fix it. Can you tell this makes me mad? Why? Because it's bad thinking. It's ignorant thinking, bad thinking, small thinking. That's along the same lines as racist or sexist or religious bias. You need to shake bad and biased thinking in order to harness the power of professional, of business, of sales thinking. 
Really, my friends, you need to move beyond your comic bias and use these disciplines. Understand these disciplines. At least be aware of the power of these disciplines. Why do you think those successful salespeople are always so smug and smiley? Because they know you don't have the balls to cross the bias barrier and understand their skill set, their science. Okay, rant off. Let me be rational. I first learned about the science of sales when I realized that by learning and applying these secrets, I can make more money with less work. And I call them secrets because they are secrets only to those who are too biased to go out and look for them. Just like I trained myself to give speeches and presentations, even though I was terrified of standing up in front of a crowd, I learned the methods of sales because it scared me too. Why? Because in life and in business, you look for points of leverage, where the smallest amount of focused effort can move the largest amount of capital. Leverage, that's what studying public speaking and sales have in common. Those both can be areas of great leverage for a business person in their career. I define sales as the mutual exchange of value. I give you something of value, you trade me something of value. We both get what we want. This is what makes our society work. What is the science of sales? Well, as usual, that's a big question. And I'm just going to peel off one piece of it to make my point. I'll, I may do a series of these science of sales pieces to get you an overview of what's going on in this process and get you more detail. You may say, but Chris, I'm never involved in a sales process. Oh, really? So you've never bought anything? Oh, now the light bulb goes off. That's right. You are continuously involved in sales processes. You just don't know it, and you don't have the tools to be successful at it. The first thing I want to share is the process itself. You may hear people refer to it as the sales cycle or the sales campaign. Believe it or not, most companies have a standard sales process. This process starts with the marketplace and ends with a purchase and use of your product. This process has a number of discrete steps in it. The goal of the sales process is to move you in from the market, through the process, and out the other side as a paying customer. The important aspects of this sales process are finding enough potential buyers to start the process, marketing volume, getting enough of them out the backside as actual paying customers, the close rate or the effectiveness, the speed that you can get them through the process, sales velocity or sales cycle length, the revenue and cost that you get with each transaction, profit margin. Many more people will start the process than will come out the other side as paying customers. This makes the front of the sales process wider than the exit point. That's why it's called a sales funnel. It's shaped like a funnel. The goal of any sales organization is to get more prospects in the front, get them out the back faster, at a high win rate, and at a low cost and high price to create margin. Marketing activity is what companies use to herd prospects into the front end of the funnel, sort of like a border collie herding sheep into the barn. 
These include all the things that you're familiar with, billboards and TV commercials, etc. For direct sales, they include other things you're familiar with, networking, white papers, webinars, cold calling, etc. The first step in the sales process starts with a suspect. We don't know if that person showed up in our funnel because they are willing, able, or desire to buy something. Maybe they just got lost or got bored. The way we turn a suspect into a prospect is through qualification. The qualification process will be different for different businesses, but we are asking questions to see if you have the ability to buy, a reason to buy, a time frame to buy, urgency, and we're even asking questions to determine if you are someone we want to have as a customer. Why do you care about any of this? Because now you know that when the nice person asks you, what were you looking to spend today? He or she is trying to determine whether you are a prospect or a tire kicker. The next step in the process is typically some form of proof. If you are indeed a prospect, we may ask you some more questions about how you would use this product. This is known as discovery. We do discovery so we can determine which flavor or application of our product fits you best. Discovery questions would be like, is it a north or south facing yard? How much sun would you say it gets? How much traffic is there in this area? You see, we know so much about our products. We have to skinny them down to what's important to you. Then there may be some sort of demonstration. This may be as simple as handing you the product to hold or as complex as doing some example work for you. This is how we prove that the product will meet your needs. We may also have you talk to our happy customers. This is known as a reference. Got it? If everything seems to be a fit, at this point, we're going to ask for your business. This is called closing by hardcore sales folks, but it could be as simple as you just deciding to buy. At this point, you may bring up competitive offerings and negotiation commences. If we agree on terms and price, then we may execute a contract. When you sign the contract, we have a sale. When you pay your bill, we have a revenue event. If I'm a salesperson working on commission, I get paid either on the sale or the revenue event. If you want to have fun, search Google Images for Sales Funnel. <laughs> there are hundreds of variations of sales processes. I have seen processes with 15 or more discrete steps. The more complex the product and the application of that product, the more important having a discrete sales process is. Why? Because the company needs revenue events to pay the bills and keep the lights on. This, this is the disconnect. Sales are not always predictable, but your monthly bills are very predictable. This makes the owners of your company crazy. How much are you going to sell? I don't know. You can't run a business like that, now can you? Now you know why the sales department has so much power in the company. They control the flow of money, which is the food and water of the corporate body. And that my friends. That is why they follow a structured process, because it allows sales to be more predictable. 
If I know that I'm going to get one paying customer for every 10 prospects, I know I have to find 10 more prospects or do a better job at getting the prospects I have to the finish line. See, once you have process, it becomes a science. It becomes predictable. And more importantly, it becomes learnable and manageable. Why do you care? First, by understanding the sales process, you can realize when you are on the receiving end of the process and manage it to your advantage. Second, realize that you are a product that is being sold every day, and you can use a sales process to make that outcome predictable. Third, there is nothing magical about sales. Once you understand the process, you can take the fear out of it and move yourself closer to the money. The closer you get to the source of the money, the more money will end up in your family's pockets. Fourth, realize that there is nothing inherently evil about sales as a process. It's how you use that process. You can use it too. And you can use it for good. Fifth, the sales team has the ultimate leverage on the rest of the company. If they stop selling, everyone loses. It is always in your best career interest to seek out points of leverage and align yourself with them. And finally, you should try to get some experience in direct sales if you can. It's a powerful, portable skill set. And the only thing keeping you from learning it is your own petty biases. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Chris Cooper, you've written another book. Yeah, this one, uh, I was grateful that you had me on your show a couple years ago with, with Long May You Run, my other book. And this one was a, a little departure. I spoke to 50 runners of all uh, different abilities, and I did 50 interviews and wrote up their stories, and it was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, and I've, I've had a chance to read through some of these. And these are, it, it, first point, it's amazing that you got all these people to talk to you, right? I mean, this is like a right. who's who of distance running in, in my lifetime. And you're looking at, you know, Jeff Galloway, Kara Goucher, you know, Zola Bud. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And these are all the folks that are on the cover of Runner's World and, and, you know, I've been in the news throughout my lifetime. That's really cool. Dick Beardsley, right? Brian Sell and Jerry Lindgren, who's a bit of a, a hermit like guy, I guess you got him to talk yeah, to I, you. I felt pretty proud of uh, tracking him down to Hawaii, actually. But yeah, yeah. Don Cardone. I mean, all these guys are, we're talking from the 74 Olympic games through, through current times, Catherine Switzer. I mean, these are, these are really great, great folks to talk to. So, how did you get all these folks to talk to you? Well, uh, first I was flattered. I, I agree. It was it was um, amazing that all these people wanted to talk to me. I was flattered that they wanted to. I went about it by a lot of social media. A lot of them had personal websites, and a lot of had a lot of them were on Facebook. Several of them I had known from work in my last book that I had contacted them. I think when I broached the subject of asking them to talk about the best race they ever ran. You know, I think that resonated with them. And a lot were excited to 
not only think back to what race that would be, but to actually want to discuss it with someone. And they were, as I wrote in the introduction, you know, some they talked about it very excitedly. Some actually uh, had tears when they were telling me about the race, and some were laughing about it. And it was a, a high point in their careers, whether or not it was a win or a loss. And uh, I think that's what brought them to me. They said, you know, it sounds like a, a great opportunity for me to tell someone else about this special race in my life. And it was really interesting to me to get the inside story on some of these races that I remember, you know, that were were Olympic races or Olympic trials. And I remember these races on TV and, and getting the inside story on what went down out on the course where the, you know, where the cameras aren't. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, too. But but you're right, because I found the same thing. And I don't try as hard as you do, but I've never had anybody, any famous runner turn me down for an interview, even for what I do. And for the most part, they're really solid citizens and real people. And especially if you if you meet them halfway, if you know something about running, if you're a runner, you're talking the same language, right? Right. Yeah, we all know how the how tight the running community is. It's a great bunch of people. Yeah, I all it takes is uh, reaching out to them, and uh, you'd be surprised how, that they're willing to help help out. Yeah, one of my favorite interviews I did was with uh, Steven Seagal, um, who does Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. Oh yeah. Sure. And he's a, he's a compulsive runner, a good runner, too, a, a Boston qualifier, sub-130 marathoner. And he just loved the opportunity to talk about running instead of the other stuff, right? So uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just like the rest of us, you know, put, put your real life aside and talk about running for a while. And so we talked a little bit before, you know, about the main themes in this book, and it's a it's a lot of stories. You got a lot in here as well. That was that impressed me. How many how many chapters did it end up being? At one point, I thought maybe I bit off more than I could chew, but it was fifty. So there were fifty chapters with, which means there were fifty runners that I interviewed. We touched on world champions and Olympians, and I also. I also had a good relationship with Achilles International, and they gave me some names of people to contact who are disabled runners, and they were very inspiring themselves. And then I wanted a good mix of runners like you and me, a lot of um, everyday runners, recreational runners that never get the glory of being on national TV but but have a great story to tell. You know, we all have, whether you're an Olympian or whether you're a a 10-mile-a-week runner, we all have great stories to tell. What we were talking about before was, You'd think that when you ask this question, what was your best race? Mm-hmm. You know, on the surface, your first reaction is, I want to talk about that, you know, that first time I qualified for Boston or the, when I, for these guys, you know, when I won the Olympic trials. But 98% of them, that wasn't what they would say their best race was. Yeah, I know. And I, I think that's a great thing about the book. And that was actually my hypothesis going in based on a couple conversations I had. And actually the first, uh, the first, the impetus for the book was when I spoke to Brian Sell, you know, the, the Beijing marathoner, uh, the U.S. marathoner. And uh, he helped me with my last book. And I, I just happened to one day ask him, you know, I guess your best race was when you qualified for Beijing. And he said, well, actually, no. And he went back to this old, he went to a, like a Division three college and was on the cross-country team, and he referenced a, 
a race he ran where he didn't win, but his team, his little team, knocked off the big powerhouses. And uh, he said it was a it was a team thing. You know, it wasn't the the personal accolade. It was that the team did well, and we did it as a team. And uh, and that sort of set the ball in motion that that maybe I should ask some other people about their best race and see what what comes up. Yep. For instance, we talked about Jeff Galloway. Everybody knows him. And he always says he's an Olympian, but the backstory is that he could have qualified for the marathon in that Olympics, but he let his buddy win because he was already qualified for the 10K in the Olympics. Right. Part of the story is he wasn't as good in the 10K, nearly as good in the 10K as he was in the marathon at the time. He actually qualified in the 10K as a surprise to him. Just He just wanted to, to try it because he knew the marathon was coming up. And he, since he qualified for that, he was able to pace a good friend of hers, Jack Batchelor, in the actual Olympic trials marathon. Uh, Jack had some trouble in the 10K for various reasons and uh, was very depressed at not making the Olympic team. And and Jeff said, "Look, you're gonna, I'm gonna help you qualify. I already made my team in the 10K, and I'm gonna help you qualify for the marathon." And uh, that was uh, one of the more poignant stories in the book. Yeah. And then he didn't do, you know, he didn't even make it into the finals in the 10 K cause that wasn't his event. I asked him if he had second thoughts about that. And uh, he said, definitely not. He never had any second thoughts about that. Sure. He's, he, uh, he made the Olympic team. He would have been favored more in the marathon, but he says, you know, it's just uh, the thrill of pacing his friend to a spot on the Olympic team just resonates with him today, it's, it's, uh, and that's why it's his best race. He says uh, and that was so fulfilling for him to do that. Yeah. You know why he didn't do well in 10K? Because he had to stop and walk all the time. <laughs> Did that happen in the actual race? No, I'm I joking. I'm joking. I'm You're joking. joking. That's what I thought, because he's he, the... He was doing the walk run. Um, yeah. The, uh, so the other one, I, I forget who it was, but the one where the guy's uh, coach in cross country in high school told him, okay, the only way you're going to win is to go out really, really fast and hold it. You know, there was a bunch of those stories where these famous runners sort of fought back to a high school meet, a cross-country meet, where they where they beat the, the big guy, you know, by some sort of strategy, or they, like you said, they won as a team. It was interesting that their, ba- their best race came back to something in high school. Exactly. And I think, uh, well, Ed Eyestone was one of them, but and he said... He had a good point. He said, you know, a lot of the people see us on the podium at Olympics or some other race, and they just don't know what other experiences we've had in all the other races in our career. And to him, his cross-country race in high school meant as much to him or more than uh, qualifying for the Olympic team or the NCAA championship he won. But they, I, the one you're talking about is actually Keith Brantley, you know, one of the best road runners in American history. And, yeah, his strategy was against uh, an unbeaten opponent who he, could, he couldn't beat. He, he, he said the, no matter what strategy he tried, this guy would always uh, come up to him and, and, and beat him at the end. And his coach, they, they just designed a strategy for him to just to go out and tear out for that first mile and let everyone think that he was gonna, just going to die at the end. And he, he did, and uh, he surprised everyone and, and I think himself by actually winning the race. 
and he we we talked in the in his story about is there a perfect race and that the his story was centered around that and he says you know he he can't think of anything else uh he could have done to make it more perfect than it turned out to be and for him that day that was a strategy that worked yeah and he put so much distance on the guy in the first mile everybody just assumed they were going to see him again and he he was right. able the guy didn't have enough race to catch him and there was a something similar to the story with John Sinclair both he and Keith were trying something that they had never done before and all their races they were um they were quite anxious because they said, you know, I was going to do something that day that I had never tried before, and then I didn't know if I was going to just blow up or it was going to work. So that made it more exciting. The Jerry Lindgren story was actually really funny, yeah. you know, because he thought the Russians were right behind him the whole time, and he actually won by like a 200 yards or something on a cinder yeah. track because the cinders were coming off his cleats and making this noise behind him. He thought there was somebody right behind him. But Jerry was a little nuts anyhow, right? Yeah, well, it was a, quite a conversation we had, but uh, just nonstop motor mouth, but uh, it was very enlightening. And yeah, that that was a huge race in American running history because it was against the Russians. And according to Jerry, they thought we were a bunch of wimps because we could win the sprints, but in the, when it came to the, the distance events, we could never beat them. And yeah, he had quite a story to tell. I actually contacted someone who was at the the race that day in the Coliseum, in 1964, and he said Jerry just took off, and uh, it was like he was being you know, demon possessed, and he just uh, he, he ran lap after lap faster than the previous one. So it was quite a story. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm not going to ask you your favorite story, but I mean, what what are some of the things that stand out for you in these stories? What what what's something that surprised you? There was a very touching story by John Stanton, and we we probably don't know him here, but in in Canada, he's a he's a big deal. He owns the store called the Running Room, and it's sort of like the the Foot Locker in the United States. And it's it's a, it's a shoe store you know, for runners, run by runners. And um, even though he was he likes marathons and ultra marathons and Ironman competitions, uh, according to him, the best race he ran was just like the half mile in the torch relay at Vancouver. And that oh was yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great story. He was overcome by emotion that he was representing representing all the Olympians before and and to come, and it uh, it was quite emotional for him. He he didn't expect much at all, and then as soon as he held the torch and heard everyone yelling for him, you know, it was a great experience for him. And that was uh, he told me right off that was his best race. Uh, yeah, it was funny because he told his wife, "Yeah, don't bother coming. It's you know, it's four o'clock in the morning. Nobody's going to be there." And he ended up walking into this huge party and was on the news and stuff. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, it, it said he was like a rock star. Uh, someone, yeah, a name from the a name from the past who, again, I was surprised wanted to talk to me was Zola Bud. You mentioned her, and right. she's now living in she's now living in South Carolina. And, yep, uh, I saw her, I saw a Runners World article on her, and you know, sort of a mixed thing because she was you know she was running for South Africa during apartheid. And she was the one, everybody remembers Zola Bud. She was the long blonde hair with the bare feet in the Olympics. But, right. uh, yeah, she had an interesting story as well. Yeah, and I touched upon the bare foot issue. And, you know, she said, in, and I wrote it in the article, she said, 
if growing up in South Africa, everyone ran with bare feet. It was the, the doctors actually actually prescribed parents not to put shoes on their their kids for a long time because they thought it helped them develop better. So it, to her, that was natural. She thought everyone who thought she was strange because she ran in bare feet was actually strange themselves. So that was a, that's a, a another side issue. But her story was just imagine a a young girl, you know, about 14 years old. She was at her first big race, and she wasn't expected to do well. And the night before, in another race she ran where she finished out of the podium, she saw that the winner not only received a gold medal, but a, a little gym bag. And to her, that, that gym bag was like the best thing. And she was determined the, the next day to win the race, not for glory, not for any accolades and not for a medal, but for the gym bag. So it was, it was interesting how she said she was coming down the final stretch thinking nothing but that she was going to win this gym bag. And uh, to this day, she says it's her favorite possession. She still has it. Yeah, yeah. And a couple of good stories in there for that sort of thing, where the story itself, it's not about the race. It's about the race in combination of the place. So when Dick, Dick Beersley goes back to his um, roots in his hometown and, um, and, and you know, when the lady goes back to the Chicago Marathon to defend her title, so it has to do with the what made it the best or the most memorable race was the place and the time and the race. Exactly. Kara uh, Goucher is another prime example of that. She, went, she never raced in her hometown of Duluth. You know, once she became... Uh, once she, went to college she rarely came home she was on the the world racing circuit and she had the chance to run in the usa champ half marathon championship back in duluth her hometown and she took it and it was uh you know she said it was a full circle coming back for her to run on part of the same course on the roads that she used to train so much as a high school runner and she just felt the outpouring of support from so many people uh, so many people that whose kids ran with her in high school, and so many loved ones that were on the course and holding up signs, and and uh, to her that was you know her last comment was you know with with all the outpouring of love and support that was the best race I ever ran, you know, and not many people knew about that race. Right, and I think Dick Beard Dick Beardsley's story was something similar, right? Right, that was uh, he's he's a great storyteller, real funny guy, and he was graduated from college and went to the his father's dairy farm milking cows and he he decided to just see how far running could take him and uh he did well he got a good coach and he was he had just won the London marathon and then went home to run back in Minnesota where he's from against Gary Bjorkland who was a, a Minnesota icon at that time so Dick Beardsley was just like the young the young up and comer running toe-to-toe with this uh, veteran runner, both from Minnesota. And it was quite a story of how uh, uh, they helped each other along part of the way, and then uh, Dick put a little too much trust in Gary, and Gary went ahead, and it's a great story of how Dick came back to get him and how he finished the race. Yep, and and I love those marathon stories because it's long enough that there's a whole story in the race. You know, so much is involved. A lot of these world champions have 
the same kind of trouble that you and I do in marathons. They tighten up. They they'll get to mile twenty and they think what's going on and they they, they uh, their glycogen stores dwindle. So they're uh, it's interesting and some of the thoughts they go through are the same things that you and I think about. So it was sort of comforting to see that some of these people suffer like we do, but just on a on a at a faster pace than we do. Yeah, exactly. There's no. Uh... There's no rational reason behind some of the things that happen in a marathon. They just happen. So it's it's interesting. And, and it's, it was funny that uh, you talked to Catherine Switzer, and she didn't say her best race was the 1967 Boston Marathon, right? It was the, the anniversary race for the Athens uh, Marathon, the, the original, right? Right. Well, she's, you know, as you know, she's known for that that marathon where she was, she was the first official woman runner and they discovered her and tried to push her off the course and that was a, a huge right. story. That famous picture of her boyfriend, the rugby player, knocking down uh, Jock Semple. Right. But so, uh, you know, she she feels that you know she's part of marathon history and, and you, you, can't, you can't disagree with that. So her running in the, the race that was the 250th anniversary of the actual marathon was a, a highlight of her career, even though she hadn't run a marathon in 20-some years leading up to that. So um, when you get to her story in the book, you'll find out how she suffered quite a bit in that. But, um, you know, it was to her, that was the best race she ever ran. That's amazing. So what can, what can you and I and the people who read this book, what, what can we take away from this? You know, what are the deeper lessons? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's just that in you know any race, any experience in a race uh, can make it your best race. You, know, you don't you don't have to. Uh, it's not you don't have to get a PR. You don't have to uh, win the race. You can you can not do as well as you think. But something about the race, whether it's uh, running with a friend or whether it's uh, meeting your future wife, like one of the people did in the in the book, um, or if it's just something that inspires you to do better or encourages you to um, run better in the future a best race can be can mean different things to different people i'd say that um, that's a good lesson to come out of this book yeah i think you're right and also sort of counterintuitive that the best race even for these folks who are you know clearly elite is not about the time and it's not you know it's about it's about the whole thing the place the people the event, and then the race, um, and the experience of it. So it, it sort of validates the whole process of the race as an experience as opposed to a race. Exactly. And I, I think that's refreshing to, to hear that from these people that, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, spe- speaking of the elite people, a lot of times we think they're just like robots going through the motions and showing no emotion at all. But, but yeah, there's a you know, deep in these races and deep in these performances, there's a lot going on mentally and psychologically, and these races have a lot of meaning to them, more than just you know, winning, more than just the prize money, or more than just uh, a medal. Yeah, so I think that that translates to everybody who's going to strap on their shoes and, and try to run a race. Yeah. Did you have um, any difficulties in putting this book together? Any challenges? Not really. I, I basically had the story in front of me and had to, well, I had the the notes in front of me and I had the story they told me and I just had to put it in the right order and organize it 
that was the the challenge. But uh, you know, I had a lot a lot of good things to work with. I had a deadline to to follow. So that you know, towards the end, when a lot of runners couldn't talk to me early on because of training commitments or several other reasons, uh, I got a big flurry of interviews that I had to conduct at the end, and I had to uh, write them up with a deadline bearing down on me. But um, no, the, 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 I enjoyed the writing of it. I enjoyed just talking to these people. It's, it's interesting. You really get to know someone when they, when they talk about a race like this. You get to know their personality. And uh, a lot of them thanked me for helping them relive their race with me. I, I thought it was a, a neat way for me to get to know them better by uh, seeing how their personality works through talking with me and through these races. Yeah, I suppose it's like anybody else, like a writer or a or a rock star, where you have this uh, avatar or this personality that everybody thinks they know you, but we got a little peek under the curtain to uh, see the rest of the, the whole person there as well. Right, right. Uh, one of the runners was Paul Gompers, and uh, he was, uh, again, another good runner on the the American Road Racing Circuit, and he's now a Harvard professor. I was a little intimidated by that, you know, how he would be and, uh, you know, his his status as a very popular uh, professor at Harvard, and he was a very down-to-earth guy, um, very nice guy to talk to, a guy that loved to hang around with or, you know, run a couple laps with sometime, and he had a very touching story about um, his father. Again, it was a race he didn't win, but he dedicated his race to his father who died jogging with him at the end of one of his uh of his races and uh you know right that followed him through through his career and uh it was a very uh touching race that he ran to honor his father so when's the uh so when's the published date when's it coming out it's coming out september 3rd and it'll be an ebook and it's available for e-readers and I, uh, Apple devices and, um, you know, Kindles, all that kind of thing. And, yep. And it's going to be on, uh, it's going to be on Amazon, right? Yeah. It'll be on Amazon and, uh, Kobo and, um, iBookstore. And yeah, so, uh, it'll definitely be on Amazon. So the, the real title is? The real title is My Best Race. Yeah. And the subtitle is 50 Runners and, the finish line they'll never forget. That's awesome. All right. Well, I'm I'm pleased that you shared the, uh, a pre-release copy with me, so I could get a jump on it. And uh, and this is great. I hope you uh, hope you do well with this. There's some good stuff in here. If only for the fact to get all this stuff on paper. I think you've done us all a service as runners in our community. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I was privileged to do it. And uh, before going off, I think I should mention that. You are one of the 50 runners in the book. You had a tremendous story yourself, so I hope everyone is at least interested in reading your story. Yeah, one of my stories. I got a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. This was good. Thank I'll let you, you go. Good. I'll let you go back to writing your next book. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Plantar fasciitis, part two, how I got it. 
This is the second article in a series on how I got plantar fasciitis. Why do you care? I'm asking that a lot today, aren't I? I don't want you to have to suffer through a long layoff from your sport like I had to. My story might help you catch it at the outset or avoid it altogether. I knew I had plantar fasciitis and made an appointment with my foot doctor at the end of June 2011. I first noticed that my heel was sore sometime in May of that year. I made the appointment after running the Mojo St. Loco event in St. Louis. At that point, I could not run any distance at all without my heel throbbing with pain. Walking aggravated it as well, especially in business shoes. It would throb during the day while I was sitting. It would be bad in the morning when I first got out of bed. In May, I had successfully trained for, raced, and requalified at the Boston Marathon in early April. I had no heel pain at that point in time, even though I was logging some significant road miles and some high-quality tempo workouts. I was running five days a week and around 30-40 miles total in the months leading up to Boston, and I had been running injury-free since breaking my ankle in 2007. Looking at me, you would not think I was at risk for an overuse injury at that point in time. I had been running at this intensity and volume for several years in a row with no problems. Whenever I get injured, I look for what changed in my routine. I look for what happened that was different that could cause the injury. In this case, I can't really be sure, but I can make some guesses. Now, usually after Boston, I cut back on the intensity of my road training and I transition into something with less pounding on my legs. In previous years, it had been trail running or triathlon or mountain biking, by changing my sports focus seasonally, I prevent my body from wearing out. In 2011, I decided to train for three things at the same time, a triathlon, a mountain bike ultra, and a trail ultra. I figured the long, slow distances of each sport would be complementary. Even though my total hours of training did not increase, the mix of the training changed significantly, and this may have contributed to tweaking something in my heel. Specifically, I transitioned from long and intense road workouts to long and less intense trail runs. I cannot conclude that this training transition put more stress on my arch per se, but it was a change, and I could be considered part of the causality. When I transitioned back to the trails, I did so in an older pair of New Balance MT100s. These are fairly minimal trail shoes with a very stiff sole. And the fact that they were getting a wee bit long in the tooth may have been a factor in the plantar fasciitis. The combination of training mix change and shoes past their sell-by date could have been a causality. I do remember the first time I noticed a little heel pain was while running the trails with those shoes on. It felt like maybe I stepped on a pointy rock and picked up a minor bruise. And this, my friends, is the next thing that you need to think about. The way this injury manifests is so slight and unobtrusive that you don't get a chance to respond to it. I didn't think I was injured. The pain was so minimal. In hindsight, I can see that this was where the tear started. 
there is something about the nature of the tissue in the plantar region that makes it sort of numb by nature, and you won't pick up any sharp pain when this thing starts. The only way you would be able to catch it would be to work over your feet with your hands and fingers, you know, dig in there. And in this way, with some close inspection, you might find that tear. After that moment, it got worse, but not worse in a way that I noticed. I noticed a slight ache in my heel. It only hurt sometimes and was quite minor. And I was in such great shape and had been injury-free for so long, I didn't even see it coming. But over the weeks, it got worse slowly. And then that long run in St. Louis on the cement sidewalks pushed it over the edge. And having to walk through airports in my dress shoes pushed it over the edge. And the bottom line is that this debilitating injury that knocked me down for almost two years snuck up on me. By the time I figured it out, it was too late. How can you avoid a similar fate? Well, pay attention, especially to any pain in the heel, the bottom of the foot, between the toes, or anywhere near that arch in your foot. If you feel any small ache in this area, dig into it with your fingers and see if you can isolate it. For me, I could feel that little knot of scar tissue in there when I dig into it. And try to avoid any abrupt transitions always in your training, even if they are nuanced transitions. And pay attention to any pain that manifests in those weeks following that transition period. And don't try to get an extra five miles. <laughs> don't try to get an extra 500 miles out of old shoes. It's not worth it. Spend the 100 bucks. It could save you two years. And when I start describing exercises to make your feet stronger in the upcoming articles, do those before you're injured as prevention. They don't work so well once the damage is done. If you have pain, no matter how minor, in the foot for more than three to four days, stop. Let it heal. Get started on the strengthening massage campaign before you get scar tissue. I should not have joined my friends in St. Louis. I should have quit running weeks before I was forced to. Working out on the injury created the scar tissue. The scar tissue is still in there, and I work with it every day. Be smart. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. There are times when I feel old. There are times when the ancient dirt of this world sifts into my soul like a ghost. It is in these times that I smile. I smile for those things that I have done, for those people who I have met on my path. And I get up and go to meet the people and do the things that have yet to be met or done. This is life. Don't think too much about it. I've got a bunch of interviews in the can, and I'm going to try to start cranking out some shows to catch up. I may even have to push out more than two per month. So make sure you go to my website at runrunlive.com and sign up for the email list. It's right there. It's the only thing that you can sign up for. And it will drop a notice in your inbox whenever I drop a show. It's actually just reading the RSS feed and slapping it into a newsletter format for you geeks. And I know I'm running long, so I'll head for the exit. 
I haven't run all week. I felt super beat up and burnt out coming out of Erie, and I wanted to let my hamstring pull rest. I'm going to go meet Ryan for 10 or 12. Zone 2 in the morning, and I've got the Littleton 5K on Sunday. I normally don't run 5Ks. I normally don't run 5Ks. But it is part of the Neshoba Valley Grand Prix series, and I'm trying to do them all. I'm just going to jog it. I might even go over and run the course once before the race just as a warm-up. The next weekend after that is the Harvard 10-miler, another Grand Prix race. And then I'm off until the Denver Rock and Roll on October 20th, I think it is. I'm definitely not racing in Denver. I have on my to-do list to put together a training plan. And I think I may shoot for Fort Myers as my next qualifying attempt. The good news is that any race I qualify at now is good for two years, meaning I'll get slotted into Boston 2014 based on that time, which will be good this year because with 36,000 runners on the course, you don't want to be in the back. And I'll be qualified for 2015 as well if I want to keep going. I had a few... People purchase my audio books over the last couple of weeks, and I really appreciate it. I don't get paid for any of this, and if you were to invest the $10 in one of my audio books, it keeps the wheels turning at the Run Run Live corporate studios at uh, runrunlive.com. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Shoot me an email if you need anything. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao!